Welcome to the Jack Jones and Martin Warner Show. Today, we are doing something very special. We've got into this to learn more about subjects that really matter to us. Pulling back the curtain on life, business and art. And today, I would like to talk about entrepreneurship. Now, I've got tons of burning questions for my co-host. He's as interesting as any of our guests. Martin Warner, what's up? Well, thank you. And uh, first of all, I want to say uh, I really appreciate you inviting me to my own show. Well, I thought if anyone's going to get the best out of you, it's your best mate. Because you can be a bit sticky sometimes. I know. Yeah, I know. But, you know, this is a great subject because it really underpins a lot of the things that we get to explore across anything, you know, any of the broad genres, business, life and art. We have seen to come back to business and we come back to entrepreneurship. And so this, is, I think, will be a, a really cool conversation. Well, I'm hoping we can boil it down for people listening. And I'm sure uh, hopefully there'll be some tips and general information for them. So the first thing I want to ask is... There are so many strings to your bow and you've moved through so many industries, be it film, electric aviation, drones, other bits of tech, and you even managed to squeeze in a minority investment in the Batman film, a decent Batman film. I'll give you that. Well done. Thank you. And you've also spent more than 20 years teaching entrepreneurship. What makes you tick, mate? Okay. Other than the fact that I was born out of uh, a family that, that was just pretty regular, that, that mm-hmm. didn't, you know, it's not like we were starving or anything like that, but we didn't have anything and there was a need to survive and, and to learn. And, and what I learned through as a kid was that I was pretty different. I was isolated and alone and I was think, overthinking everything. Mm-hmm. And I was curious about life. And one thing we have in common is that we want to learn all the time and that we're curious sure. people, right? Um, so something up here is working, uh, you know, the, the cranium is, is, is ticking pretty fast. But it was also born out of this kind of need to, to progress, mm-hmm. which became a concept I love and I obsessed about it. So you take those two things, this burning need to, to progress in some way and the fact that you're naturally curious. I think that ultimately led to me um, engineering, it led to me building products, it led to me understanding how to find out what works and what doesn't and to question when it's wrong. How do I improve myself or improve the product or improve a business? I think all these things manifested themselves in this from a business context as entrepreneurship, mm-hmm. even though... I've done a lot of things and I've worked in industry as an entrepreneur before I ever became an entrepreneur. What's an uh, entrepreneur? It's, a, it's a, uh, an executive in a company that is given entrepreneurial power um, and behaves like an entrepreneur but inside a company, but they don't carry the same risk-reward structure. Mm-hmm. Uh, the buck doesn't always stop with them, but they demonstrate entrepreneurial ability. I'm a product of making that transition. So you're... You have a curiosity for life that, and then you also would like to progress. So you, I know you quote about making positive progression in all things and you, I know you apply that to all of your life and you're saying you've had that since you were young. Yeah, yeah. I'd also say that there are many things that make entrepreneurs tick and I think I share some in common for sure. And those are two, but there are some other things and that's that you have to be deeply passionate about something and you uh, have got to have some level of ego that says I'm not going to be beaten by something because it's such a hard journey and you're constantly problem solving and it, it opportunities don't always present themselves and they don't always present themselves as positive. So you've got to have the ability to see past those dark times. Um, you know, I heard uh, a number of different ways of looking at this, but but Peter Thiel coins someone else that says something that we all believe and that's, you know, it's like you know, starting an entrepreneurial gig is like staring into the abyss or chewing glass. And, and it made me laugh. I thought, what, a, what a, a snappy way to talk about it. And that is that there are periods of darkness and they come onto you very quickly. So you need to have this resilience and everything that comes back to this ego, this ability, it can be a quiet ego, but it sits out there saying, I won't be beaten. I'm gonna. I, I want to pursue this this opportunity, and I think that's a an, an important mindset to get into. But I think just to bring it round, you said something where you have to have a passion, which usually then brings connotations of someone who's quite monolithic. You have a passion, you follow it, and then you become an entrepreneur in that field. But you've had many disciplines that you've jumped into. So the question is, at core, what is the passion? Well, I. I we've talked about this a, a lot 
people have multiple passions in life. We live life in chapters, right? So we, we always generate passions, a passion to be in love, right? Got a you. passion to use a certain product, a passion to be inspired by a certain artist, right? These are all passions. And the way we use products and develop brand loyalty is, is you know, it, it fuels from interest and then into passion. Mm -hmm. And you know, I'd argue it evokes, sometimes it evokes to love, right? So I didn't agree with everything that Steve Jobs did, but I loved him as, as, as um, a guru in the space of entrepreneurship and, 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 and in innovation. And even though he didn't innovate all the stuff, he was the, the mouthpiece for it. Mm -hmm. um, coming back to that curiosity, and as I get older and I've had a bunch of success, I wanted to make sure that I could pursue some of the things that I wanted to change. And a lot of them come back to, I wanted to make my purpose uh, as, as broad as possible and as valuable as per possible because it's, I enjoy the job, I'm obsessed with the job, and if I'm gonna stay in it, I wanna make sure that it's purposeful, mm -hmm. right? So that meaning has to be there. That led me in my curious life to say, you've got multiple passions, you're getting older, how am I gonna get them out? Mm -hmm. I wanted to do them. And a lot of them are about making the world a better place, so I'm willing to wait mm -hmm. a number of years to figure out whether something will work. So I wanna, I wanna make independent film uh, regain its identity in, in the fabric of cinema because the lens is so important to humanity mm -hmm. as an art form. Mm -hmm. Electric aviation is obvious, right? That I care about uh, somewhat or a step towards clean energy. And I could go on, but there's a greater purpose that I'm really passionate about. And I've got the ability to be curious and to wait and try and uh, explore those journeys. I don't recommend it for everyone, mm. but that's, that's the reason. No, but I think for anyone listening, uh, they would take from that underneath everything is you need to be in love with whatever it is you're trying to get yourself into because it is at points like chewing glass and very difficult mm. and you need the little bit of ego you need a little bit of uh yeah balance with the practical aspects and the desire for progress mm -hmm. um mm -hmm. so i think you've summed it up nicely mate and you've got multiple businesses now um and many success stories over the years but what was your very first well, if I go back to when I couldn't describe the word entrepreneurship as a kid, um, I've got um, a story like everyone that I was considered a, a street trader would be a bit strong because it started at school, but a trader. And uh, I, I was- I love there. how you've coined yourself a trader. Yeah, yeah, right. That's uh, that's because nice. I've traded a lot of things, right? <laughs> and, and also- uh, Can you tell everyone what the- what what the product is you were trading? Yeah, well, well there, were, there were a few things. So, so my-, my my, they weren't always planes and uh, no, 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 no. So my first, one of my very early forays, I'm going to give you three. So one of them is what we call a rental business, which I'm really excited about, which was Atari games, right? And the Atari, and, and I'm not kidding, I'm still proud of this day that as I, as I rented them out for a pound a, a, a night uh, to kids in the playground, they would go and use them and then they'd bring them back. And as I rented more and more, I bought another game and it was a simple model until the headmaster, a deputy headmaster took them all away put them in the trunk of his car and gave them to his kids. you know taken away from me what I was selling? I found a bag of porn in, a, in the local forest. And so, I they started so they say. My business started at one day. It lasted one day. <laughs> the head of year found it. <laughs> but carry on. So, so you were selling so that was my, that was my Atari game. That was my great rental business. And, and, and even though we stole them, I had, not for today. You stole them? Well, he stole them for a long time. And, and when they came back, a few oh, you of the mean games like were a, missing. So a I, library card kind of thing. No, no, he just, he took, he took, they were cartridges. Right. right. No, but what class. I mean is you borrowed them for a long time. He borrowed them you? and he gave them, he gave them to his kids to play with, which I thought was outrageous, right? That's hypocrisy. Um, and, and then ultimately I got a couple of games that were missing. Um, oh, you mean one of your customers? No, the deputy headmaster stole oh all of my, my bloody Atari games, right? He said, you're I'm not having we them, so you, we're taking yeah. them away. But then it turned out he gave them to his, son, his kids, right? And then when they came back to me, because my parents helped, I, mean, I, was, I was young, like I'm talking, I was 12 years old. 12 whatever, years right? old. So that was the rental business. Got the, the other one was that um, my dad, uh, all credit to him, he's not here now, but, but I said, I really want, I was into fashion. My dad was really into fashion and he used to love wearing blue jeans. And we'd, he brought me up on markets, the East Lane Market, mm. you know, Middlesex Market. And, and at the time there were these cowboy belts and they would find their way into every fashion house all over the all over the world, right? There was a mm -hmm. time where, and even now, you'll see people uh, you're wearing them. So I figured out that the same belts were on these markets, and there was a lot of them. They looked pretty cheap. And I said to my dad, "Can you lend me the money?" I said, "I want to buy them. I can sell them at school." And he wanted to enable me. He goes, "Yeah, how much do you need?" I said, "I want the whole store." And he went, "What? You can't have the whole store." He goes, "Don't know how many there are." 
by the way, there was less than 100, but there was a lot. Yeah, I mean, yeah, we were yeah, talking yeah. tens and tens and tens of them. And he bought the whole lot for me because he believed that I, it would give me something to do. And I went to shore, sure as, sure as hell, you know, inside trench coats, which were fashionable back then, the weirdest trench. I would have my They're still belt. fashionable now. And Yeah, I mean, yeah. if you imagine, though, I looked like maybe someone that was flashing or something because I walked with a trench coat hung with, with a bunch of belts. And I was selling them, and they sold very well. And that led me on to my third experiment without knowing that I was an entrepreneur, and that was um, selling tickets as a... I think quite an advanced ticket tout because mm-hmm. I was never in front of the stadiums, but I built a network of people and I learned something really, really important. And that's that this idea of buy and hold and the buy and hold model in supply and uh, demand is a really, really important point. So when you've got these big brands, you buy the tickets early, it's really simple. You, you hold and wait and then you sell them and then you need a distribution network to get them. And so I could sit taking most of the margin on the increase in price and still leave a little bit for the tout to make at the stadium. I had over 200 people doing that. And, and what happened was I ended up getting a first right of refusal with ticket counters. So there's no Live Nation. There was no cloud when I was a kid. There were just these shops, and I started in Soho. And back then it was Michael Jackson, um, Madonna, Rolling Stones, and people like that. And I'd be buying all the tickets. And that went on for some time, and, and I thought, this this is pretty good. Got to tell you, mate, don't know how I feel about you tickets out in being in the music industry myself. There are a lot of people that, this ain't StockX for tickets, mate. Yeah, yeah no, it's a fair point. I just yeah. want to point something out to you as well. I do rate your capitalism, though. Yeah, and, and I also want to point out there's people like me that enable the legends of people like you, because if I can get you 10 grand for a ticket, it makes you look better, doesn't it? Only if someone reports it, it didn't happen if it's not on Instagram. Well, then would you care if it didn't happen? All right, mate. Yeah. <laughs> Listen, By the way, I wouldn't go back to that business. Not least of all, it's fully, fully automated. There's no margin. But it was Follow-up question. Cool, you've got the classical entrepreneur story. You're a bit like Alan Sugar. <laughs> you, you were on the market stall. I'm, be- I'm better looking. Marginally. You were on the market <laughs> stall. You were renting out a target. You started your business when you were seven years old and you developed this hot streak. Almost made your first million when you were 20 years old, right? 23. There you go. Yeah. But... What about your average person that didn't do that? Are they hopeless then? <laughs> I mean, you laugh, but it's a fair question. I don't think there's an age in which you have to begin entrepreneurship. That's just, I don't think there's any evidence of that. If you, I don't know, let's say you were, I'll give you a great example. You hear about these these people that are like butchers or blacksmiths, whatever the era you're in, and all of a sudden they found the next thing that, that was, was automation or a plant or they went into mass agriculture. If you've got a great idea and you're willing to devote your time and you're reasonably smart and you're, better still you can surround yourself with people that can help you, I think everyone deserves the right to be in business and to, be an, to become an entrepreneur. It doesn't mean that everyone should be in business for themselves or be entrepreneurs. Agreed. But, but, yeah. but I don't believe it's limited by time. If you get in early and you've got successes and experiences, does it help? Yeah, of course. Yeah, I think uh, touching on that as well, there's a lot of societal pressure to make something and own something for yourself. You see it culturally now. And I think it's important that if that you're not predisposed to that, it's okay. You don't have to. No, you can make the transition. There's an awful lot. If we didn't have that, we would presuppose that everyone just got out of university or, or, or college. And be and having just, a crack. And, <laughs> and just said, I'm an entrepreneur. And there's plenty of those. Um, and there's plenty of skilled uh, practitioners, electricians, plumbers that may think they're entrepreneurs as well. And you know what? They are. Um, entrepreneurship is a broad title, but there's a lot of people that come from industry. So often when you think about one of the things I've learned early doors is if you want to make a lot of money, you go towards the businesses that have that type of market share, right? Now, You've moved. You've moved from the ticket tout model, you know, rental models, early entrepreneurship models, which are based on finance. Within when you're working at corporate banking, into tech. Was that a a, a predetermined decision, or was that just where your passions led? Because oh, yeah, that's where you're going to make big money in tech. Oh, that's where all the headlines come now. I'm in the wrong business, mate. I'm going to be a pauper. 
Well, I mean, I mean, uh, I mean, you do, you're doing okay for yourself. So, I mean, that, that, not compared to tech. Uh, no. In tech, I could be an average tech guy and make more than what I'm doing now, and I'm I'm doing well in my world. Yeah, you know, you, know, you can you can always you, you can always look I'm at the gra- you can look at well, you can look at the world as, as or oh, the grass is greener. But I think in your industry, uh, you know, artists are already looking and having to be very entrepreneurial about their job. I they're, agree, and, and they're they're having to establish brands to look at other channels, uh, whether it be merchandising services yeah, yeah. and other stuff like that. And so you are, uh, you know, to me. The making of the legitimate entrepreneur, right? That has to go looking for those those opportunities. But that's why we talk and so very much about it. Yeah, right? yeah, it's yeah. I extremely agree. entrepreneurial. Well, you have to build something. But how? What made you move to tech? So I I, I started out with three things at school. Um, I was fascinated with software. Um, so back in the days of of basic, um, you know, well for a little while afterwards, C plus plus, but. Back in the days of, of when it got cut to Visual Basic for applications, these are languages that would end up helping my career. So I was a developer, or a software engineer, and, and I was okay. I was pretty good at doing it. I, I, more importantly, I had an enthusiasm for it. But I sure. So it's still in your good. passion, and, and yeah. that today has never left me. Sure. By the way, the other thing is, is that um, I was very much into math and, and into finance, and I guess that tells you why I took my part of my, my journey through through investment banking. And the other part was that I was into film. And ironically, math and drama and theatre art were my two highest marks uh, back in uh, secondary school. So those three things I carried forward and I created a duality in my life. One that was obsessed with film, every aspect of film. And the other one was to pursue careers that blended finance and technology. Two mm-hmm. pretty good areas, right? I mean, I, I also became an accountant. Um, by the way, brilliant skill set. You never forget a balance sheet, income statement, uh, accruals, and all these things. It's important. You know? Yeah, and, and even I mean, if I recommend know, anyone re- that hasn't even studied accounting should know how to read it's, their it's, BS and it, PL. It, it, it's a great. It's a great tool. A lot set, of people right? don't. <laughs> no, and so if you think about it, general business and 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 finance and and, and understanding of technology are pretty good foundational subjects, right? And that led me, um, you know, to come out of uh, what was raw entrepreneurship into a career where my partner at the time said you know you're going to make a, a, a traditional job for yourself so I went through some normal places and it spent a long time in investment banking but what happened was I was changing mm-hmm. I was becoming an entrepreneur whether I liked it or not mm-hmm. I was known as a maverick I would launch products I would spin things out of the company um, I was um, bad for a traditional um, big company but I also changed a lot of things for the better. Mm-hmm. When I went into consulting, um, I, you know, they promised me to deliver on projects, to have clients that I could work on with thought leadership, create new sol- solutions. I thought I could really get involved in consulting. Found out none of it was true. So I had to go and invent it. Mm-hmm. And so I had to go and buy the industry, get my thought leadership, get into the, the, the magazines and win my own clients and stuff. I was entrepreneurial. And, and by the way, the only reason I went to consulting is that I wanted to get out to the software industry. I was mm-hmm. focused on technology. So I think the, the, the challenge for me was that um, I, I did know that I was becoming an entrepreneur. And that led me always with technology from, from school. And as I evolved, I became obsessed with technology. And then all of a sudden, the internet just exploded. And, and I was always creating products, even inside organizations. And I had plenty of ideas. And I'd studied venture capital, M&A, or mergers and acquisitions. I knew an awful, I was an account, I knew an awful lot about things that were, more, were harder to understand in the cycle of an entrepreneur. In other words, you travel the journey as an entrepreneur. And you may still never get to, to apply M&A. So I also had the product stuff. It was natural that I was going to go and find things that I had greater control over my creativity. And as an, an analyst, as someone that looked at the market, I was always two to five years out. I loved hypothesizing about what was going to happen and would try to figure out how I would participate in that journey. That led to some good wins. So you're talking about ramp. Ramp. which we should touch on later. Yeah. Uh, for those who don't know, ramp is your time to market and how much leeway you have to get there compared to your competitors. So before we move on to much more practical aspects of entrepreneurship, because one thing that's interesting about your brain and we see glimpses of it is that you have a model for everything. Mm-hmm. And due to your experience, you've ex- you've jumped headfirst into most situations. So, And then you reflect and come up with solutions that you could apply next time. So let's say a person has passions, fishing, photography, 
and bottled water. Yeah, they love it all. Tried every bottle of water in the game. What would you do at that point? Because what tends to happen with, I notice a lot of people that want to get into business is they try to take on the world in one in one go. How would you break that down? Do you just follow the journey, run it all at once, take it one step at a time? So the three things you said, um, are, you, are you using them in your illustration as separate ideas for entrepreneurship or the, the person's just That's like passions, isn't it? They're just- Because let's say someone's at the start, they like, they're working in a company, they wanna set up their life, they wanna uh, be their own boss, they mm -hmm. wanna run something that can grow and provide for their kids in the future, and they don't wanna do something that's a grind. They don't really care about JCB tractors. They don't wanna get into that. They don't wanna get into, um, they know that you know SOP coding is great, but they love photography, Martin. You've just told them to follow their passion. Mm -hmm. So what, do they just do it all? Mm -hmm. What do they do? The first thing to, to say, well, just because you've got passions is to put a definition around your suitability as an entrepreneur. So the first question is, do you do any of it? Um, are you in the right place to become an entrepreneur? Are you aware of what the journey is gonna be? Have you got the affordability to just get into it because you're gonna have to spend money and when the business sucks it dry, you have to probably go and find more money. People go broke doing that. Mm. So have you done enough of, of ascertaining um, that early small business entrepreneurship route and you say, yep, I'm gonna do something. Second point is just because you have three passions, those three passions may not be, uh, once they're validated, uh, a, a, a viable business opportunity. And actually you might have something that's a hybrid between them, or you might have something completely different that you're gonna go and do. What I encourage in this situation and have written tens of thousands of words on this subject over 20 years, at least 20 years, is that I say to people, um, go take a case study of something you're passionate about and go through the process of understanding, are you really at the right time? What is the right time? Do you understand what it's gonna take? Go validate an idea properly and what that business looks like. And what that do, the tool set is more important than the outcome because now you'll be able to do that quicker when you see something else. Because Eureka ideas, big market ideas, they don't come around all the time. And they come from different areas, lots of scholastic thought on where does that killer idea come from? They just come from everywhere. So what you do in validating it quick, finding people that draw consensus, skills that draw consensus and collaboration, and then ultimately people like that give you investment and ultimately customers that support the investment. How do you validate the idea quickly? I was going to um, define quickly. I was going to, I was, I was uh, if I can, I was going to say one more point about the three things, and then and that I mm. think gets to something that, that is your critical path to say yes or no to it. So you do all those, you, you you do those three things. The fourth thing I'd say is that as an entrepreneur, we know that the passion is there for a reason. Right, the passion is there because you know enough about the subject that it's going to maintain your interest. And if you've done the bit about, am I an entrepreneur or not? You, not, you have to have acknowledged that there'll be dark periods, there'll be challenging problems, there'll be stress, there'll be choices with the family, the business never sleeps. This goes, I, you know, I write a book just on this because I've, I've talked about it too much. If you've answered all that, then you need to answer the question that you are resilient enough, resilience is an important uh, entrepreneurial trait, that you can stay there through that passion. Passion takes you so far, then you've got to get the other side. What gives you confidence out of those four things is ideation, the, the process of validating an idea. And I argue you do as much of the ideation up front before you spend your money. Go, if you're gonna go play chess or go out for dinner with, with the wife and the kids and whatever, you know, play football, find some time where you're gonna treat it as a project and go through a methodology. And you know, we publish one, many people have got them. I spend a lot of time on distilling kind of people at the top of the funnel meeting. They just started, they're curious, but they're trying to figure out, is this, is this, is this a journey I can take? So I take them through all of it, but importantly, I take them through validate what you're saying. Do you really have an idea? Well, worry about whether you're an entrepreneur. There's another few questions you ask yourself, but have you validated it? So is there a market for the product, right? Are, are, is there any defensibility for the product? How complex is the product and over what horizon? What evidence supports that I could go on? There's a list of questions that gets you to a point where you say, wow, I feel more confident because I now understand the circumference of the, of, of, of the idea. And now if I can build other assets, maybe to get other people to come on board to help me with it. So I think that's a practical step. You have an idea and then you validate the idea. 
using various methodologies. And I think the key one is, as you say, complexity. Is there a market who identify the market? Learn more about that gives you confidence. Okay, so you have all of that. And is there a, is it ultimately is it a product? Is it a service? Uh, what channels could it be sold in? Mm-hmm. How do you describe to people really the honest benefits of it, whether it's an enterprise or, or an end consumer? Um, you know, these things have to be proven. We have to. The hardest thing in entrepreneurship is to create a customer. Mm-hmm. So you have to be able to understand what the customer wants, and all of the rest trickles back to to arriving at that that outcome. Yeah, there's a famous uh, designer. Uh, that came from France. He was an orphan from France called Loewy in 1940s, went to New York and expected to see beautiful things, but he was met with industry. And then he says, why is there nothing of beauty here? And he went about redesigning the trains, redesigning cars. And his first project was a fridge. Um, And everyone thought it was wild because it used to be really ugly things. He made it beautiful. But he said, we know nothing as, as the producer he asked customers everything and then adapted to it. So it's super important. If you can, I think Kawasaki said that as well about pleasing the customer. Do you remember that? I, well, every great entrepreneur, uh, Amazon have running um, at the mantra of their business, a customer centric engine, right? Yeah. Um, you have to, I mean, today you forget having them come back. You won't even capture them. If yeah, you don't exactly. understand what the customer wants. Yeah. So one thing, I would say about the characteristics of an entrepreneur, because I think what you're asking someone to do is be very honest with themselves. But I would say that there's scope for, even if you perhaps aren't the most resilient person or perhaps you aren't the best communicator or the best manager. And this comes up a lot when you speak to people, often they start businesses and they start it with a mate or they start it with a business partner that perhaps aren't useful later down the line or do they need a business partner? And can you just touch on your thoughts about business partners and perhaps there's a way you can fill voids that you have? Do you know what I mean? I think the key is you know what they are, right? That's a great question. And we, in the program, we've got a module that focuses purely on this. I mean, it's that important. So there's a couple of things. I'll split it into two. I'll answer it in two ways. One is that there are entrepreneurial traits right so 22 you can have 10 5 remember when we talked to guys like that many and i'm like yeah i mean it depends if we're going to look at it properly yeah they they really exist i mean you can you, i mean you're you, you look at things in great detail but there are there are a few key ones yeah and, you can, and su- you can summarize ones, them. You know i mean yeah but 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 what you can't do is you can't um trade them um well unless you split them out that that's one one conclusion i've made so we just use resiliency as an example if you understand your traits and understand the fact that you won't be strong on all of them, some are easier to be nurtured and others can have close relationships. So two traits bond better than other traits. So when you go to find your partner to help you in business, you want them to have those traits and, and looking close at whether they've got those traits or not. So if, if someone's going to be the CTO, the product person, and the other person's going to be the CEO, sales and marketing person, well, they've got to have confidence. They've got to have a, a natural way of selling. They've got to understand enough about it. They've got to enjoy being in front of the customers, and they've got to take the beatings when things don't go right. So, you know, there's resiliency stuck in there somewhere as a trait, among others that are closely related. So the answer is you're not going to be everything. Find out what you're strong at and find out what you're weak at. And then the answer is it's always better if you can get on with a founder uh, to become co-founders. It's better to take the journey together than on your own because it's just brutally hard. And I've done both. And, and, Which do you and, prefer? And I, 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 I'm a, a little unique in as much that I like my alone time I don't fear problems. In fact, I live for them, right? Which is a weird thing. I want to solve problems. I find a a lot of exposure because I get a lot of inputs from people. So I get to talk with a lot of people. Um, But if you ask me to intellectually make a decision, I think the challenge is, do I know enough to do it on my own now? And can I make the right decisions to create a good business? And ultimately, of course, people think about rewards and stuff like that. But I think it more is control and being able to steer the ship properly um, versus in almost every other outcome, I would say, if you can have a founder or two, it makes sense. 
Uh, so in my, and we're going to talk about it. I'm sure in my 3D printing business, a good friend of mine we worked for her for years. We big man Mike. Exactly, you know, what I call a practical uh, engineer, a practical genius, you know, he built a, a, the printer and I did everything else around it and we collaborated really well and it was still extremely stressful because Holy Grail exit, exits have very quick outcomes and everything either works or crashes. And so we learned an awful lot about that. That was a very good marriage because someone had to take care of the technology and the ecosystem and the other person had to take care of the business. I would argue that you should always look for a co-founder if you can. There are isolating moments where you don't need it, and if you've got capital and lots of experience, um, you can you can get that expertise and insight and that corroboration, uh, that reassurance, someone to talk to when you're down. Uh, but co-foundership make a lot of sense to me. I think for context, you need to tell people what the Holy Grail exit was. You glazed over it, but you well, need we to... haven't talked about it. I well, you just mentioned it. You glazed over it about the Holy Grail exit yeah, yeah. regarding your 3D printer with Mike Derma. Yeah, Duma. Yeah, big up Mike. Yeah. Think of think of three ten to humor. Ah, I understand. Yes, 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 yes. So tell me, tell us what that is, yeah. what that was, and how that happened. So in two thousand and thirteen, um, it was a strange old situation. Um, I had a bunch of um, entrepreneurial stuff going on, mm -hmm. and um, a friend of mine turned up at uh, my place, and he gave me a, a, a whistle, and it was a pink whistle. And I looked at it and thought, well, I said, it's plastic. I said. Oh, does it work? So I blew it and I thought, well, this grass, it looks like it's been 3D printed. And I, I went to walk away and he said, it has. And I said, well, good for you. Well, I thought maybe just got three. Okay. I didn't really give anything. He went, I build them in my spare time. I just stopped. I said, what, you build 3D printers in your spare time? I've known you, I think it was eight years at the time. He goes, yeah. I said, why don't you tell me? He goes, well, I don't know everything about you. And I said, herein lies a greater conversation. Uh, when you, you, know, you don't know you, you don't know someone that well, and it turned out he'd been doing it for about a year, and he and he's you know, he just loved playing with stuff. So we went to the hot tub. We just love you know bubbling water and, and a cigar, and we're chatting about life and business. And be, be, lo and behold, we discovered that the my work on researching color, which was going on at the same time, led to this idea that three D printing is really cool. There's a revolution coming, and that this could be big. We're not sure where it's big, but maybe the end consumer it's big. And so I got out of the hot tub having uh, come up with a name called Bot Objects, Bot for anything robotics, an object, you create an object, and a really advanced name that sounded like it was permanent, like it wasn't some experimental little shit. So we came up with Pro for Professional, Desk for Desktop and 3D, the Pro Desk 3D. And I thought, here we go, we got something. And then we jumped on the jet and we just started to say, what's missing in the market? And we literally made a list and said, let's do all of those things. So if you had two motors, it'd be like having a Lamborghini, we'd build one with 12 motors because we needed all these cartridges to create color. So we needed to create this really complex printer that look, is about a foot and a half by, um, by, a, foot, by a foot and a half, right? So whatever that is in, in the metric system. And um, that venture um, focused on, on saying that customers, anyone could experiment with 3D printers. And one day, every home would have a 3D printer. That was the vision. like Steve Jobs. Um, and yeah, and, and, and do you know what? We took a printer that had an average of 70 moving parts to 400. Um, and we were trying to create a Lamborghini printer with, for a Mercedes price. Mm -hmm. They're about three to 4,000 uh, pounds or dollars, depending on what market you're in. And uh, that business went on for 17 months. And we, uh, we, we got our third compadre, uh, uh, a manufacturer, uh, that was behind the whole vision of what we're doing. And I went out and... Uh, Having designed it with, with, with Mike, as we were proving the concept, we then got distributors on board all over the world. You know, one in China, two in Japan, Russia, America, every, all over This was Europe. before it was built? Yeah. Well, we had How a did you get distributors on that early? Because the market was so hyped. One of the key points. Ramp. The yeah. The, well, it, the, the ramp had begun mm -hmm. and uh, everyone just said, is this real? Mm -hmm. And people wanted it so bad. They wanted full color on the on the desktop, so we. So what were you showing this these distributors uh, without an actual so, product? So we, we already had a prototype, so got so we didn't so we could show it moving. So yeah. you and Mike Mike had built a prototype. Yeah, got you. Yeah, but by the way, by the time we were done, um, you know, we had twenty one distributors. We'd we'd moved out a thousand uh, printers. Uh, we had them all at every show. I mean, the thing was out; it was working, and that was great. But the challenge we had was: do we sell it? Um, because we had a great offer from the world leader, or do we build it? And was the end consumer going to be in love with something that still was amazing, 
but it was more amazing to uh, experimentalists, industrial designers that, that wanted to test engineering and maybe wanted to create a piece of art or a functional application that they could use with plastic or metal or whatever the material the 3D printer was using. It wasn't going to create a, an incredible, wonderful, soft iPhone case. We printed iPhone cases. They were brutal. You could almost get splinters from them, right? I mean, they, 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 it wasn't it wasn't going to be. So do you reckon great. that's why they're so expensive? The cases they make. No, the prefab. These are com- just a completely different material. Um, and by the way, three D printers now have moved into multi materials, elasticity. So you you sold the company though after eighteen months. That was the so, big- so seven, seventeen months we, we we sold it and we sold it for fifty million dollars. And if you think about it, uh, it was sold in 60 days, which is unusual and, and very tight. It was sold mainly, uh, we believe, for its patents because the, the leaders in the industry, which was Stratasys and 3D Systems, had to come through us because we had enough uh, uh, patents in this 106. The other challenge is that we were all over the market. So we'd wake up to stories in papers, the front page of a magazine. We call it our m M&M. Um, syndrome no, we were almost famous right so in the industry we were everywhere I mean people knew us because we were doing something extremely controversial the challenge is that what was controversial all, about it well so in the market so industry controversial as much that no one believed we had the technology but no you one, showed the prototype we, we showed more than that so in the beginning what started it you can't write this we went to a conference in New York and we spoke we decided how do we break this story early and create a fuss and we end up talking to a Twitter account that had a, a radio show, and it, they were called Solid Smack. You can't, you can't write this. 5,000 followers, that's it. But we deduced that all of the influencers in our industry followed this particular trade account. Mm-hmm. So we said, look, we got this. Look, here we got this thermoplastic. We're going to heat it up to 220 centigrade. It's going to get to liquid, or it will liquefy. It will merge. It will hit a hotbed and cure. It's an inkjet printer, and it's going to create objects. And they went, not possible. Because mm. the nano engineering, the ability to make things, and it's not quite nano, but this is what people termed it as because it was a great extreme, was to bring it into a little box, have six cartridges running, and then create an, a needle that looked like um, five international space stations colliding together. It looked like Sputnik with all these things. So it's it was impossible. So apparently. difficult. Yeah. yeah, the engineering still, they said it's not possible. Well, we proved that. Yeah. And every time we put a video into the market, no one believed it was real. So they'd say, they're just lying. These guys are hoodsters. And fortunately for us, we had, we, you know, we managed, managed to get the press to follow the story properly and we were able to solve those problems. And it only really died down for us, the controversial nature, when we got bought, when everyone went, Jesus Christ, we didn't see that coming. So it was real, yeah. Yeah. And the so rest is history. That's a Holy Grail exit, by the way. It's a, it's a Holy Grail exit. I yeah. mean, it's more money than a lot of people would ever imagine to have and you made it in... But it's really is it eighteen speed? months or seventeen. Seventeen months. months. It's really the so same. Yeah, that's yeah. what I'm saying. So it sounds With like no a whirlwind journey. We didn't pay for PR. That's yeah. so. Did you ever think that it was just going to go wrong? Well, I, th- I think that uh, Mike, Mike will tell you that there are a few meltdowns in hotels around the world um, and frustrations over and what? Like, oh shit! What, you know, we've that timeline's not right. How do we fix it? And then we get on the phone and or, or yeah, when we built the printer, the printers. Like I said, foot and a half by foot and a half, maybe maybe two foot at the max, because uh, we had different different lids at one point, and we had to put it in this big box. It looked like a it, when it was shipped. It looked like a small washing machine. <laughs> Think about that box. So packaging drop ship like uh, testing that it would drop correctly, and packaging it right. This thing had so many moving parts that they would arrive smashed, oh and my so God. so yeah. we went through so many phases. Like we shipped one to um, the Tokyo Design Week. Mike flew out. To Tokyo, and I couldn't go to this particular one. And he goes, "Oh no!" He goes, "Mike, he goes, he's broken." He goes, "I got to rebuild the shit. I got to, I got to get it right." And so we had some, or, or like we're we're on a TV, and uh, Fox Business really loved 3D printing. Was all over the press at the time, so we had us on uh, three times. And it, it, as he got more and more excited, he said, "Can we print live on TV?" We're like, Amazing. "Yeah, that, that's great. No problem." So <laughs> always having. If you were on the news desk, you say, "When we finished with you, it'd say up next 3D, you know, 3D printer bot objects is printing." It'd go over at the printer, and the thing was going, yeah, as it was printed aside. And I said, "What happens if one of those cartridges gets clogged?" as it's melting through, as it's you know, essentially melting through the tube, as in, or it sticks to the back of the platform. These were some of the things that happened in this experimental era of, of 3D printing. It wasn't 
uncommon. It was common. But we had got a very good approach to it. We had this thing called a tri-fan architecture, which basically was just three fans blowing at it to cool it down, right? And we called it, give, give it a great name. But, and we solved most of the problems. And he said, I've got a way around that. And we kept solving these problems. But it was immensely stressful because there were no scaling triggers. You had to solve problems you know, that had very little um, upside other than the fact that you probably didn't have a business if you didn't get it right. So it was, it was polaristic. And we were able to solve those problems in, and, and get out of the business. I mean, uh, problem solving is a constant theme and possibly the, the reason why it's like chewing glass at some point. And yeah. I think out of everyone I've met, you have a unique way to problem solve. Uh, we know from your, yeah, you know from your career. Yeah, yeah. And, uh, and perhaps less like an emotional roller coaster because it, it is a roller coaster. Can you share how you approach problem solving? Because I think it's good for everyone to hear. Well, so I, I think of it as, as three different parts to the problem. One is that if I can't solve a problem with, with, with the right um, time, uh, the right mindset, uh, the right emotional makeup, um, a number of the elements that I need to solve it, I will park it or I will find someone else to solve the problem. Um, and I love that. I remember George Lucas' great comment about, you know, if I didn't, I wanted to see the story told, but I didn't want to make the movie. I didn't know how to, because I'd just get Steven Spielberg to do it. And so, so if you can't solve the so problem, you get delegate, someone else I'll to do it. I'll delegate it, yeah. Yep. Um, it depends how critical it is for itself, but that's one. That's and one I, way to do I, it, and yeah. By the way, I do this in, I do this nano faster, right? I, you'll give me a problem. Just quickly go through it and say, is this the right time? Can I park it? You know, what are the interdependencies? What else have I got going on? And I'll look at it all and go, man, it can, it can wait. Or actually, the person you need to talk to is this person, and then I'll make another mental note back on our time management and put it there. And, and I'll, um, lo and behold, I will come back to it. But I didn't deem the risk of that problem being big enough that it needed a solution. So, what is that about preparation uh, in order to solve a good decision? In that preparation, there's another thing, and that's that when I arrive at a problem, I want to make sure that I actually really understand the circumference of the problem so that I can go in search of real facts. Facts. That's an important point, though. Facts are everything. You are going to do analysis and cold calculation. But if you are devoid of the right scope and you don't have the right inputs, it's in technology, this really technical, wonderful term, garbage in, garbage out. Right. So you don't want that. You want to start with a, a, a demanding sense of what is the scope? What is the precise problem? And what are the inputs? And hopefully you've got some facts. Then you, what you do is you narrow the funnel to what is the analysis and cold calculation that needs to solve the problem. Rather than, it, instead of it being like that, it's like this. You're spraying out different conclusions because you haven't actually gone in search of the right preparation. The other thing is I, I add, not in the first stage, I add that I prefer to make bigger, as the problems get bigger, I make them all throughout the day, but the big ones, 11, 12 o'clock in the day, where I feel like I'm at my most alert. And am I prepared because I've got people that are going to give me the right information, whether it's third parties, team members, it doesn't matter where it comes from, that I've got that data. And then the thir third element is you will never see me solve a problem and not look for a demanding or rigorous stress test. Anything. If I ask you to do the show with me, I'm looking at it and saying, if I ask you to do something, I'll, I'll in my mind think, can we make sure, did, did that work? Are you happy with it, right? It, did, what, did I have the right problem? Because I wouldn't have asked for something if I didn't want to solve it. You always go and do a test. And people chuck stuff over and they don't test it. And this is what makes life difficult. Unless you're prepared for some kind of methodology, you don't ever solve problems that well. And then, you've done those four steps and let's say you don't get quite the outcome you wanted. How do you manage that? Well, so one, there, there are a lot of things and I think every entrepreneur looks at this the same way. Uh, every good entrepreneur looks at the same way and that's that life's not perfect. And just because we try something, even with really good calculation, it doesn't always go right. And there are a lot of reasons. Um, there could be a hurricane off the Northeast of coming in. <laughs> Right, they, they, no, there could be a natural disaster. There could be that you've got a team member that's just had a problem in the family and they're not giving their best effort. You could have hired someone that just doesn't solve the problem the right way. I could go on. There's a yeah. lot of things that are, out, that are externalized that are outside your decision making, even if you thought you got the decision right, okay? So what you do is you, die, you have to unpick the problem and there are a number of ways to, to unpick it, but you, you must, uh, for want of a better word, 
decouple uh, what's central to the issue. Um, I had it, you know, we have it in a particular campaign in one of our businesses that we're, we're driving today. And I hear the feedback from the team, the three people on the phone. And they were saying, look, we want to try this method and here's the reason why. When I looked at it, the reason, when I asked the question, wasn't the right reason. Mm-hmm. And that there was a test that was missing that would have proven it to them. My experience told me, my antenna went up, that they've got the wrong problem. But the test was very clear. And so we went on pursued that test you must decouple what's central to the solution and then go back up and say were you serving the problem that you're trying to solve and you always say something along the lines of positive progress as long as you're making incremental progress then it's cool yeah yeah and so this is worth talking about a a little bit in as as much that everyone can lead you can apply this in your home life or at work Mm -hmm. right or in any other sub-construct that you consider not work or, or life but um, or home and that's that if you can say the word incremental which means to move and you can say the word progress by coupling them together it means you must understand where you're going mm-hmm. you must know your true north so when i say that it means i have a goal i have a set of targets and that if i'm chipping away which is the job of entrepreneurship mm-hmm. right sometimes you make three steps forward one back but you generally want to make incremental progress when i talk about something i want to know that when i walk away i feel like i move forward mm-hmm. right and if and if i really know it and again using all my other tools in my odd brain to say yeah you know we're going to get somewhere i'm fine if i'm a week late or a month late or a year late because probably i had to travel that journey anyway as long as there's incremental progress I think that's an important point. Yeah. Because Rome wasn't built in a day and it's incremental progress is how you measure it rather than the end of it all. Sure. And keep in mind, bot objects, you know, 17 months. Elon Musk couldn't do that, right? Not At mm. least not every day. I can't do that every day. It doesn't matter who you are. And I paint two you know, different characters with different extremes and different values. And, 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 and even though we might have things in common, he's extremely successful. And I'm trying to say that trying to get money if we're trying to get rich quick in business, it's the wrong mindset, right? So your reality is things take time. Like you've got more chance of building a business for a billion dollar valuation over eight to 10 years than you'll ever have getting 50 million out of 17 months because mm-hmm. there's no scaling triggers. Mm-hmm. So it's a, a it's foolhardy to think that, that that's something you can apply. You can apply best practices. You can look for the perfect storm. You And, and by the way, a lot of that is it moved quicker than you thought, right? Mm-hmm. The iPhone moved quicker than the thought. You know, Steve Jobs talks about, he didn't know that everyone wanted maps. What happened was the data model collided and the voracious appetite to create apps on this ecosystem opened up a bigger operating system for them, mm-hmm. right? So sometimes things just pick up, but that's not, not the right that's way to look at it. Though, it, it? It's yeah. turning up, solving problems and making progress. If you're making progress, you get customers to come along, you get people to give you money as well. So one thing is worth mentioning though is people talk about instinct. You just mentioned it, but then previously you said that it's important to ascertain fact. And often you hear people say, well, my gut is telling me this. Would you say to ignore that? Or is it a balance of the two? Or is it better to just work with facts? Yeah, that's why I like talking to you. This is why we founded the podcast, right? That that natural curiosity leads to a really important follow-up question. And you hear, when I know the subject, yeah, I know. You're, no, I, you're, 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 you're selling yourself short. I've seen you ask some great follow-ups, but it's not it. The point I'm saying here is that you said something that that's really key. That other entrepreneurs say, you know, always make decisions with your gut. Yeah, this, this is a little reckless. It's a bit. Well, like, I find well, there's bias with your gut. Right. Well, well, I was going to say here, here's the thing. When you hear about like look, the education system's fraudulent, and, and hey, we should just not put send our kids to school, and we don't have to have a college education. I think what you get are you get a mix of sensationalism with a myopic or polaristic view, and actually the answer is something that's a little more complex that requires a bit more language that's somewhere in between, and it's called the improvement zone. So in this example, I'm going to give you an improvement on it, and that's the instincts so there's a great book um called the chimp paradox right that that talks about the emotional side the alert side of the brain right eq is important right the ability to feel that there's a problem the ability to just call it eq yeah in your iq no emotional ah i got you so so you if if the computer is the computer in our brain right but if you think about it those that gut 
is actually signals there are feelings there are emotions we're taking a different level of information that says oh, i don't smell right right that feels wrong oh, or i've been there before or deja vu which is a weird concept right that happens I just think you would of be, Neo in the Matrix. Yeah, but you, or Neo, right, but you, you would, yeah, exactly. No, but no, you'd be crazy to completely ignore it because those alarm signals are important. But I liken, if you look at that in isolation, I liken that to, I don't know, conspiracy theories. Sure. That they're hard to refute because there's some fact in them. So if you think about your emotional side, if you look at it in isolation, you're likely to not triangulate what the point of view is and what action you might have to take. But to avoid it is to topple the triangle. Mm -hmm. So it's not that I'm devoid of listening to co controversy or inputs about the coronavirus, but I'm not going to spend all my time listening to all of this stuff that might defy traditional science. So my gut instinct is important to me, but I won't listen to it in isolation. I want to go and do some cold analysis. There is something that says your instincts, because they're normally based on best practice or experiences, it's telling you something. But what you're saying is true. Sometimes we're misguided, right? We're eluded by the fact that the mirror's not quite what you're looking at. Mm -hmm. You're seeing something, but it's not a true representation of what's really happening. So you have to go and do some further analysis as well as your instinct or gut. Yeah, I think you see that when people are market testing or um, it, it leads with what what goes into their product, they make assumptions. But I think it's, as you say, it's important to get a combination of, of the two. You have that gut and you combine it yeah. with, with facts. And also it's worth mentioning about the inputs you do, because I think what, what you've done over the years is built such a discipline that it becomes second nature where you can trust your gut more. Sure. No, absolutely. Yeah, and I think entrepreneurs have to be very conscientious and reflective within that so that they can achieve what they want to achieve. The one thing I want to add to that point that, that I think is a really good one, um, and you see it all the time because you alluded to it, so it's just have to come back on it. And that's that entrepreneurs have to be honest with themselves, which is different to the gut. So the problem with products is that when they don't quite work the way they want, we, we, we live with this dream side. And we're like, oh, oh, or the pressure of running out of money or the pressure or you of talking can be to investors. Positive, uh, yeah. positive through it. You know, when people say, be positive. Yeah. Well, you start the world to, is burning, bro. You, you start <laughs> to sell yourself the same shit. Yeah. Right? You start to, and the truth is that that's quite dangerous. And so, so snake so, oil, mate. Yeah, you have to be really honest with yourself. You have to be, you, uh, not, I wouldn't say the world's worst critic, but you have to be an honest critic and in everything you do. If you can't do that, you will never evaluate whether you should have got out or not and you're going to get hurt. You're going to lose a lot of money. You're going to burst. Now, you know, if the product's not good, go fix it. If the product's not good, you've got to hang it up, go hang it up. If the product's not worth going and taking to market, don't take it to market. Fail faster, mate. All right, bro. We've spoken about a lot in the last hour. What are the most important takeaways you think we need to leave with? Um, a good summary question, right? Mm. So let, let's, let's bucket just to it's make sure that, it, it, let's say that, that this is for everyone, right? So you're coming out of college, you're an entrepreneur. You failed entrepreneurship and you jump back in. You're transitioning from industry. You're an entrepreneur. How do you pick just a few things that, that what we've talked about or, or something that, that you really need to know? One is that uh, be honest and realistic with your expectations, right? I mean, it's broad enough. It matters in overall life and it matters a lot as an entrepreneur. Um, the second thing is that um, it, you know, in doing that, make sure that you are a good fit for entrepreneurship and try not to do the job alone. Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah. If you can find a co-founder, go do that. Uh, if you're not quite ready to take on all the risk, go work for a startup and maybe get some stock options. Get and, some experience. And be be yeah. part of the founding member family. Right. Mm -hmm. You may not have the word co-founder, and, and that's absolutely fine. Right. And then the third thing is, um, find something that's going to outlive that that momentary moment of passion. That the passion will come back because it's a hard job. Mm. And remember, people, incremental progress on your true north. I love it. I do. <laughs> <laughs>